Lord Jesus, we thank you that you give us a firm foundation in which to build our lives. We live in a world that has many, much turmoil, many ups and downs, things that we, no matter how much we plan, cannot fully expect will come our way. But we thank you that you are a solid rock in which we could stand, a cornerstone in which to build our lives, a foundation in our lives, Lord. And we thank you that not only do we have you to depend on, but we have a church, a church family. Jesus, you said, I will build my church. And Lord, we're thankful that we have brothers and sisters in Christ whom we can lean on as well. As we go through ups and downs, people who can share our burdens, share our joys, walk with us through the challenges as well. And Lord, this morning as we open up Scripture together, I pray that you will be our teacher through your Holy Spirit and through your Word that never returns void. That you will show us, Lord, in fresh ways what it means to truly be the church to one another and in a way that glorifies you. We lift up this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, my family and I went to a Brewers game. We received some free tickets, and it was just an enjoyable time together. It was the first game we've been to in many years. Uh, since my son, Micaiah, was a toddler, my daughter, Tahila had never been there. And so they asked tons of questions. It was fun for them just to experience that environment. On top of that, um, it was enjoyable to see Christian Yelich hit a home run. You know, the Brewers lost 7-1 to the Reds, but still, fun to see at least that. Um, one of the most memorable and fun times, something that led to my wife and I having a good laugh, was during seventh inning stretch. My son was excited to sing, Take Me Out to the Ball Game. And we looked over there as we were beginning to sing, Take Me Out to the Ball Game. And he has his hand on his heart. <laughs> I guess there is a close parallel between Take Me Out to the Ball Game and the National Anthem. But you know what? It was really an enjoyable experience together as a family. But I have to say that my family and I being there made no difference in the outcome of that game. Our presence there had no impact on how the Brewers played. Because we were merely spectators. We were not players. It was the players down the field who made the difference in the outcome of the game. We were there for the experience. We were there to observe, and we were there to cheer the team on. And this is how many people approach the topic of church. That when people go to church, they go primarily as spectators to be recipients of what the church has to offer. They are there uh, to, to sit there and listen. They are there and they sing some. They might put some money in the offering plate to support the ministry of the church. They might feel good about Jesus as a result of their experience there. But then they leave. And they don't recognize that they are called by God to not merely be spectators and to not merely be recipients of the ministry of the church, but to actually be participants in what God is doing in and through the church. And so it begs the question of, why are you here this morning? Why are you here at Freedom's Church? Why are you a part of, of a church, whether this is your church home or not? Why are you here? Is it because you want to receive something? Is it because that's what you've always done? Or do you recognize that God is calling you to a very significant role that he wants to work in you and through you to build his kingdom through the church? That's what we are looking at today. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We are in a study right now on the book of Ephesians. Ephesians started actually as a letter. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to Christians in the city of Ephesus. 
And the book of Ephesians can really serve as a comprehensive uh, orientation manual for the Christian life. It divides easily into two halves. The first half of the book of Ephesians, it has deep theology, teaching about the gospel in terms of, of the good news of what Jesus accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection. So the first half is deep theology, things that are important for Christians to believe. And then the second half of the book of Ephesians applies these gospel truths to our lives. And so the second half that we are in today is very practical and applicable to our day-to-day lives. And when it comes to how a church ought to operate, this passage in Ephesians that we're looking at is my favorite passage in the entire Bible. It's my favorite passage. I have other favorite passages for other things, but this is my favorite passage for teaching and understanding how a church is designed to operate according to God's blueprint. So I invite you to follow along in your Bibles as I read Ephesians 4, picking up in verse 7. Paul writes, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now one thing I want to point out from this passage is that Jesus' goal is to expand his kingdom. In the opening verses of this passage that I read, we see that Paul is quoting from Psalm 68. And then he describes Jesus' ascension into heaven. And and in these descriptions, he is showing that Jesus is the victorious king. And then in verse 10, it says that he ascended into the heavens so that he might fill all things. And this phrase, that he might fill all things, shows that his mission is to rule. That his mission is to bring this universe that was in rebellion back into submission under his lordship, reconciling all things to God through the work that Jesus did through his life, death, and resurrection. This is his goal, to rule over all things. This is why he taught his followers to pray, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, when it comes to seeing God's kingdom come on this earth, we are certainly called to pray. But we have a a larger role than merely praying. What this passage shows us is that we each have an important role in God's kingdom. So Jesus is a king. And he's not a selfish king. He is a king who lavishes gifts on his followers, on other people. We see in verse 7, But grace was given to each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. 
So it says that grace was given to each one of us. Now, grace is an undeserved gift. It's something we cannot merit, we can't earn it, but it's given to us freely. But as Paul says that this grace is given to each one of us, in this context, he's not talking about the idea of saving grace. And we know from Ephesians 2.8, but it is by grace that you have been saved. We cannot earn our salvation. It's a gift by grace. But this here in in chapter 4, verse 7, is not talking about saving grace. It's talking about what could be called serving grace. It's grace, it's gifts that God gives us to serve other people. And specifically what he's talking about here is what could be called spiritual gifts. And we have each received this serving grace, a spiritual gift or multiple spiritual gifts with which to serve people around us. He says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now what is a spiritual gift? It is a God-given ability that enables Christians to perform specific functions in the body of Christ with effectiveness and ease. So if you have a gift or talent that, that you can utilize, that comes naturally to you, and you're effective in how you utilize it, you utilize it to build up the body of Christ, to glorify God, that may very well be a spiritual gift. It's a grace, it's a gift that's been given to you to serve God's people and to serve the broader world for the glory of God. As we look through Scripture, we see that there are different lists of spiritual gifts. None is comprehensive in and of itself, but when you compare the different lists, you can see that there are at least 20 different spiritual gifts that are listed in Scripture. There may be even more than that since no single list in the Bible is comprehensive. But here in this passage, Paul lists out five specific spiritual gifts in verse 11. He says that Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. These five gifts that are listed here in verse 11 are gifts that are given to church leaders. Prophets, apostles, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Of this list, the shepherds and teachers pertain the most to us because those are roles, shepherding and teaching, that pastors typically have. So Paul is talking about church leadership and how a church functions here. And listen here to the role that church leaders ought to have in a church. It says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints. Saints are simply Christians, God's people. To equip God's people for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So what Paul is saying here is that church leaders lead by equipping the congregation. That is the role of a church leader, is to equip the congregation for the work of the ministry. You know, every group out there needs leaders. I mean, some people in today's world like things to be incredibly egalitarian, where it's a completely level playing field, and they think, we don't really need anyone in authority. We don't need leaders. We can just figure out where we're going ourselves. But every group, if it's going to be faithful to whatever it's trying to accomplish, it needs some form of leadership. Because a leaderless group pretty much either turns into a mob or into a blob. I mean, think about that. Um, You have a group, and they want to do stuff, but without effective leadership, they become basically a mob. They're doing things. They're active, but oftentimes they are kind of directionless in what they're doing. Uh, There's oftentimes a destructive element where people are hurt in the process, and oftentimes mobs 
don't create lasting healthy change. And, and so a leaderless group, if it wants to be active, it ends up usually becoming a mob if there isn't healthy leadership guiding that group. On the other hand, a leaderless group could become a blob. Where, you know, a blob, you have people who are gathering together, but they're not really doing very much. They don't have an ultimate purpose that they are effectively fulfilling. And so groups need leaders and churches need leaders. And Paul says here that the purpose of leaders in the church is to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. And so church leaders lead by equipping the congregation. And that means the congregation has a responsibility as well. The congregation is to build itself toward spiritual maturity. The congregation's role is to build itself toward spiritual maturity. So what this means is that if you are a part of a church family, your role is not merely to be a spectator. And it's not merely to be a recipient of the ministry of the church. Your role is to be an active participant in what God is doing in and through the church. To illustrate this, Paul uses the metaphor of a body. A body. I mean, we all have bodies. We can picture how a body functions. He uses the image of a body. He says in verse 12 that, that we are a body of Christ. The idea of the body of Christ represents the church. And the goal of a body is to grow, to be healthy, and to grow to maturity. Let me show you a picture of my children when they were younger. It's Micaiah and Tila when they were young. Um, you know, they were cute when they were young. They're still cute as they get older now. Um, and they made us laugh. They made us smile. They made us take a lot of pictures and videos. You know, a lot of milestones. It's fun when you have little children. But here's the thing. They were helpless and they were clueless about the big things of life. You know what? They could not even feed themselves. They could not even change their own diaper. Those are things that little kids cannot do on their own because that's the nature of a little kid. Now, over the years, my children have grown to where now they are seven years old and nine years old. So they've grown quite a bit. They've matured. But they hopefully are not done maturing yet. Because there are still things they need to learn. They need to develop in. They need to develop additional social skills. They need to develop additional wisdom on how to make wise decisions. They need to develop, you know, further in how they even take care of themselves. Hopefully their maturing process is not yet done. Because, you know, children can be fun. Children can be cute. But you don't want to see someone in a 25-year-old body acting like a seven-year-old. You want to see little, boy, little boys grow into mature men. You want to see little girls grow into mature women. And that's the image that Paul is drawing out here in this passage when he says that we are the body of Christ. He says, um, you know, the role of church leaders is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the, of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children. So again, this is a metaphor. He says that he doesn't want us to be children eternally, but to grow up into maturity. And he, here he's talking not just about individual Christians, he's talking about the church. 
The body of Christ ought to be growing to maturity. He says, he references to grow to mature manhood. Now don't get caught up in the masculine terminology here. What he's saying is that if the church is metaphorically a person, it ought to be a mature person. He says over in verse 15, that we should be growing up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So in this metaphor of the body of Christ, Jesus is the head. Jesus is the one who ought to be in control of things. But that sets a high standard for us. And saying that we ought to grow up in every way into Christ who is the head. It's saying that, you know what, we need to grow up. We need to grow to be more like Jesus. I mean, that is, is a very high standard. But it echoes the same type of thing back in verse 13. That it talks about growing in mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. God's goal is that we grow as individual Christians and also as a body of Christ. And Paul is applying this passage specifically to churches. That churches grow. How do they grow? Verse 16 is one of my, probably my favorite single verse in the Bible as it pertains to the operation of a church. Verse 16 says, From Christ, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. How does the church family grow? It builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Every single person has a role in the body of Christ. It is not to be a spectator sport is to be uh, something where everyone is bringing their gifts, their talents, their energy, their love to the table in order to benefit each other person. That's a picture of what the body of Christ ought to be like. Now Paul expands on this idea of the body of Christ over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. That's where the whole chapter is about this idea of the body of Christ. And he says, okay, a body, you know, it has ears to hear. A body has a nose in order to smell. A body has a mouth in order to speak. A body has hands and fingers in order to grab things and manipulate things. A body has feet in order to walk. You could go on and on to talk about the different functions of different parts of the body. And Paul says, in the same way, in the body of Christ, in a church family, you have different people who have been gifted in, in different ways. These are all serving graces that God has given to you and to me. In order to benefit the body of Christ. Because again, the body of Christ, the church, is not meant to be a spectator sport. We aren't here just to be recipients of the ministry of the church. We are here to be participants in what God wants to do in and through this church family. So we need to be clear that God's call here in Ephesians 4 is not merely that the pastors or the church staff are doing all the ministry. I mean, church leaders, we have a significant role. But a primary aspect of our role as church leaders is to equip the church family to do the work of the ministry, to minister to one another, to build itself up as each part does its work. All right, last week I described Ephesians as an orientation manual to the Christian life. And this part of Ephesians chapter 4 ought to serve as an orientation manual for how churches operate. And the thing is, in terms of an orientation manual, this is the part of the orientation manual that many churches neglect. Many churches are operating in a way that is kind of like Ephesians 4 is not even part of the Bible. 
Because it is so easy in church for, for the ministry to be centered around the pastor and the church's staff. And for the pastor and the staff or, or the team of pastors or whatever the, the leadership is in the church to be doing the majority of, of the significant ministry. Now again, pastors and staff have significant roles. The ministry is to be done and shared by the whole church family. Now sometimes the reason that, that the ministry is focused on the pastor comes from the pastor himself. You know, sometimes it feels good to be needed. And it feels safer to be in control of things because, you know what, when you delegate, when you empower others, you're releasing control to a degree. And so a lot of pastors want to hold on to control tightly. and They don't want to empower others. Plus, again, it feels good to be needed. And, and so what happens then is that the ministry becomes centered on the pastor or on a, on a church's staff. By all means, the church staff needs to lead. It needs to be faithful to their calling. But part of that calling is to equip the rest of the congregation for the sake of the ministry. And what happens if, if you have a church's ministry that is centered on the pastor, that's utterly dependent on the pastor or on the staff, what happens when that pastor leaves? Because that will happen at some point, because no one lives eternally. What happens when that pastor is no longer there? If the church was utterly dependent on that pastor to do everything in the church, the church is going to struggle deeply, if not collapse. On top of that, it's not spiritually healthy for the church family. Because we are called not to be spectators or merely recipients, but to be participants in God's kingdom. Now, one of the other reasons why churches sometimes neglect this teaching in Ephesians 4 is because the congregation might be too busy, might be spiritually lazy, might be intimidated by this idea of ministering to one another. Sometimes congregations have expectations that, you know what, if I'm in the hospital, it needs to be the pastor who visits me. It doesn't matter how many other people visit me from the church. If the pastor doesn't, I haven't really been cared for by the church. Or, or the idea sometimes is that, you know what, if I, if I want to be counseled, if I want to be discipled, it needs to be the pastor himself who does that. These are misperceptions that are unbiblical. Because by all means, pastors and church staff are called to lead, are called to shepherd, are called to equip. But the way you have the healthiest, most functional, God-glorifying church family is when the entire church family is working together to build itself up in love as each part does its work. We are to be the body of Christ. We are not to be like, like fans attending a Brewers game where a large crowd gathers to watch a small handful of people doing the work. Instead, we're to be the body where each one of us has a significant role in the functioning of what takes place here. I really like 1 Peter 4, verses 10 and 11. It communicates a very similar thing to what we're talking about here. 1 Peter 4, verses 10 and 11 say, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. So you see again a reference to the serving grace manifesting in gifts. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves... 
they should do so with the strength that God provides, so that in all things God may be, um, may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So it's saying whatever type of serving grace you have, whatever gifting and talent and skill that you have to build up the body of Christ, he says use it with all your heart. Invest that skill, that talent, that resource into God's kingdom by serving one another, by caring for one another, by investing in each other's lives, and by investing in the broader world for the sake of the gospel. Do it all for the glory of God. And as I think about this passage, I'm so thankful to be here at Freedoms. I rejoice that I believe in so many ways we as a church family are living this out as a whole. I mean, there may be, still be individuals in the church family who are not really understanding and applying this passage to their lives. But as a whole, it's exciting to see just this church family work together to build itself up in love as each part does its work. I thought of, as I was preparing this, I thought of a video that we showed a few months ago here at the church. It highlights our kitchen ministry on Sunday mornings. There's always food out in Fellowship Hall after each service. I want to show you uh, that video again because I think it highlights well just this passion for serving each other here at, at Freedom's Church. Take a look at this. about serving God is just a huge part of my life and I, I believe it's a huge part of this church. Oh, I do this because I love working in food with food. It is a great way to connect with women working in the kitchen. Delicious. Um, this is Maddie and Rachel. Um, they're helpers. Rachel's 19, Maddie's 14. To be able to serve and to provide a little snack gives time for Christian fellowship after service or even before service. So um, if you look up in the Bible, there's several, several occasions, well, where he fed the 5,000. I've never done this before. <laughs> this is my first time. It, I feel like it blesses me as much as it blesses the congregation. Every Sunday, you probably might make a different amount. But what? What surprised you the most about serving in this ministry? How thankful everybody is. Oh yes, and how they enjoy it. How much yeah. they enjoy it. And how they get to know one another. The board and the financial committee have graciously given us money every week that we have uh, cash disbursement. So it basically costs you nothing. You turn in your receipt and we give you, we pay it out right away. Sharp. Yep. Awesome. 
We serve on Sundays so that people stay. They are able to build relationships with other Christians, and they're able to continue to communicate what's going on in their lives and, and how to involve others. So uh, we take the part about serving in the kitchen real seriously and about how God fills, fills us up spiritually through the services, and then we come out and we feed your tummies to get you through the rest of the morning. encouraging to see people using their gifts, using their time, using their energy to serve one another. And I can think of so many different examples here in the church family. I think of how in our nursery that's running downstairs right now, I mean, through the course of a month uh, and the course of a year, you have over 60 people who serve in the nursery to bless families with young children so the parents can worship God free of distraction. I think of our Sunday school uh, from age two up through high school. We have 15 teachers, non-staff people, people, just normal everyday people who love Jesus, who are investing in the spiritual growth of our young people here in the church. We have people who, who invest through our Ignite ministry and youth group and adult classes and small groups and Bible studies. I think of our worship team using gifts and talents that, you know what, you don't want me up here singing or playing instruments. But we have others who are gifted in that way and who are generously using those gifts to bless the rest of us and help us to worship God through music. On Thursday night after worship team rehearsal, uh, Krista Teller, our worship team leader, she put a post on Facebook that said, we had such uh, a fun worship team rehearsal tonight. The music was pretty challenging, especially referring to that second song we sang. Uh, but I was really impressed with the creativity and energy everyone brought. We are going to have a great time worshiping the Lord with the Freedens family this weekend. SDD, Soli Deo, Gloria, Glory be God alone is what that means. And there was a comment on that from one of the worship team members that said, so awesome to have fun serving. You know, that's the cool thing is that as we serve God, as we do it out of our area of gifting and out of an area of strength, and we do it with a church family, it's fun. It, it, it's life-giving. And it gives us a deeper sense of purpose than simply coming as a spectator. It helps us see, you know what, I can invest in the kingdom of God. I can be a true blessing in other people's spiritual lives through using the gifts and talents that God has given me. And this doesn't take place only through our formal uh, ministry environments. When, when Paul talks in verse 15 about we grow by speaking the truth in love, that's talking about interpersonal relationships primarily. Where you don't even have to be a leader of a small group to invest in other people's spiritual lives. Just friendships. Yeah, calling people up, checking in on them, praying for them. I mean, the Bible says that as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. That's a relational process. And that's something I'm encouraged by what I see at Freedens. And it's something I want to encourage us to grow all the more in is sharpening each other as iron sharpens iron. To carry each other's burdens. Pray for one another. At times, hold each other accountable. Challenge each other. Ask each other, what are you reading in Scripture? How, how can I help you to grow in that? Because, because the call is to, for the body of Christ to build itself up as each part does its work. I even rejoice in, in our capital campaign for our building project. And we are starting the building project soon. 
Our lender is very meticulous in all kinds of different documentation they're looking for. Uh, but we hope to finalize that process this week to begin, begin construction the following week. We hope for that timing. But I think about the capital campaign, the church family coming together. And Freedman's Church, the Freedman's family raised twice as much money for the capital campaign for upcoming building project as what an average church of our size raises. I mean, that is amazing. Each part doing, each person doing their part to accomplish something bigger than themselves for the sake of God's glory. I even think of, of someone like providing meals. I mean, Rick and Kathy Wolf. Rick has uh, brain cancer going on right now. We'll be starting radiation pretty soon for that. Um, there's meals uh, that are being provided for them by the church family. I mean, the first sign-up was for a few weeks. That filled up. The sign-up list filled up within one hour. That was people caring for one another in a very practical way. Because God calls us not to be merely, merely spectators or recipients, but to be participants and blessing each other and building each other up for the sake of his glory. And as we look here at, at Ephesians, we see that the church is central to God's redemptive plan for this world. As we build up the church, as, as, we, as we invest in each other's spiritual growth, as we make this a place where, where we are growing spiritually, it naturally overflows through us. When people get, get, gain a vision of being the hands and feet of Jesus, it overflows beyond the church walls as well. So that in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our families and friendship circles, that we are then motivated to minister there as well. And that is how the gospel spreads, through the relationships that we have with those around us, as we are investing with our time, energy, and talents. But again, Jesus said, I will build my church. And we talk a lot about the church, but the church is the visible manifestation of the kingdom of God. Jesus, remember, he, he said, I mean, his goal here is that he might fill all things, that he might rule over all. That's the idea of his kingdom come to this world. But his kingdom comes to this world as churches live in a way that God is calling us to live. Because again, the church is the visible manifestation of the kingdom of God. When people look uh, for the kingdom of God in the world, they should be able to see it when they look at how the way the church functions. And so my prayer for us is that we will see that we can each have a significant role in the kingdom of God. You don't have to become a pastor or you don't have to go on staff with the church. You don't even have to become a small group leader or a teacher or something like that to impact the kingdom of God. Just use the gifts and talents that you have in a way that glorifies him and blesses others. Because in this way, we are not merely spectators. We're not merely recipients, just receiving, receiving, receiving. In this way, we get to be participants in building the kingdom of God and in glorifying him in this world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you give us the privilege of not only being children of God, but being ambassadors for Christ to this world around us. Lord, we thank you that we get to participate in the work that you're doing. We pray, Lord, that your kingdom will come and your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, for this manifestation of your, of your global church here at Freedens, Lord, we pray that you will work through Freedens to be a healthy church family. We thank you for the health, the unity, the vitality that's already here, for the lives you're transforming in our midst, and we pray, pray that you will do that all the more, and that we will continue to grow in maturity and in treasuring Jesus above all else. 
Lord, for other churches in this area, here in Port Washington and Ozaki County, churches around this nation and churches around this world, Lord, I pray that there will be a growth in maturity, spiritually speaking, in churches as we commit ourselves more and more to you and that you will work through your body in this community and beyond to draw more and more people into your kingdom, into the life that's available through Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.